right? We're grateful that you're here. Um, and we thank, we're grateful to Father Edwin, our wonderful pastor, for um, allowing us to have speakers to come to our community to share in our faith because we are on this journey together and we want to share with each other. And it's not just, I go to church and, and that's it and I don't talk to anybody. No, we are a family. We are a family of faith. And so, and so this is an opportunity for us to grow in our faith. Um, we have three speakers, well, we have two speakers, three events this, this Lenten season. And our first speaker is Mr. David Bates. Mr. Bates. Thank you. Um, um, David just drove four hours from San Diego to be here with us because of his traffic. <laughs> and, um, and David is... Um, He's, he's uh, a student of, of our faith, and he researches it, and he's, and he's a professional speaker. He goes around, and he talks about it, and he also has a blog. It's called The Restless Pilgrim, The Restless Pilgrim, and he'll talk about that in a minute as it, when he introduces himself. So we just went on a pilgrimage from the pastoral center <laughs> to here. So, so, so see? Um, so we want to thank David for being here tonight. We want to encourage you, if you don't have, if you've seen it in the bulletin, it's, pro it's also probably on our church website. Um, it is. Mm -hmm. um, David is here tonight, and his topic is life in Christ, not just improvement, but transformation. And I'm excited to hear about what he has to say. And David will be back in April, uh, Friday, April 12th, um, talking about bringing um, people back to the church, back to the faith. So we're very happy to have him. Um, and at the end of March, we'll have a Father Tim um, Rumba come and talk about discipleship. So we have several opportunities this Lent to, to grow in our faith and um, to learn a little bit more about, about uh, our, our Catholicism and how wonderful it is. And so we can all become dynamic Catholics, right? Yes, yes. So if you'd like more information, you can. Um, there's a couple of flyers here. Please check the bulletin. Please come on Sunday. And any one of us in the women's group, um, or father, or anybody in the office can give you more information about the speaker. So without further ado, Mr. Bates. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Ooh, you're responsive. I'm going to like that. Uh, it's lovely to be back at St. Ignatius again. Uh, it's a real privilege to join you as you begin your Lenten journey. As you heard, I'm going to be back at the other end of Lent, so I'll get to hear how it all went. I've spoken at this parish uh, for the last few years, but if you don't know me already, my name is David Bates. I live in San Diego, but I'm originally from England, which is how I have this lovely accent. Uh, I'm not always incredibly easy to understand, so if I say anything and you go, I have no idea what he just said, just wave your hand at me, and I'll translate it again into American. <laughs> now, since I'm English, you can probably guess most of the details of my life. Growing up, I was taught to despise all beverages except Earl Grey tea. <laughs> at school, in addition to learning how to pronounce aluminium, I also led our Quidditch team to victory against our rivals of Slytherin. <laughs> And on completion of my schooling, I served as footman at Downton Abbey for Lord and Lady Grantham, and I'm naturally best friends with Hugh Grant, Colin Firth, Tom Hiddleston, and Kieran Knightley. Okay, most of that wasn't true, 
except that I did grow up in England. The bit about the tea is definitely true. Uh, I was raised Catholic, and after a few years of wandering, I returned to the church. And if you come back at the end of Lent, you'll hear a little bit more about that. And then 10 years ago, I moved to San Diego, where I go to a Byzantine Catholic church. In case you've never come across a Byzantine Catholic before, uh, Sacred Liturgy on Sunday looks rather different from the Mass that you're used to. But I can assure you, we're still in communion with the Pope of Rome. We're still Catholic. We still share in the same Eucharist. Um, if you'd like to hear more about it, just ask me about it afterwards. It's one of my favorite things to talk about. So, what qualifies me to speak to you good people here tonight? As you heard, I have a blog. At RestlessPilgrim.net, I speak about the things that interest me, which are typically sacred scripture, church history, evangelization, and apologetics. Also there, you can find the audio and video of any talk that I've previously given, uh, which would include the talks I've previously given at this church. Uh, I checked uh, reading scripture for all it's worth, apologetics for the confused, and Our Lady and the Old Testament. Now, not only do I have a blog, I mean, if that wasn't enough, I also have a podcast and a YouTube channel, both of which you can find at pintswithjack.com. In the podcast, together with my co-host Matt, we discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. He's the author of The Chronicles of Narnia, among a whole load of other books. And we do much the same thing on the YouTube channel, except you get the additional blessing of being able to see our beautiful faces as we're talking. And it's called Pints with Jack because C.S. Lewis's nickname among his friends was Jack. And Jack would very often be found in the Eagle and Child pub discussing literature, philosophy, and theology. Hence, Pints with Jack. Now, I mentioned Pints with Jack for two reasons. The first is I shamelessly promote all of my stuff. And the second is that a lot of what I'm going to be saying to you tonight, I was taught by C.S. Lewis, principally from reading his seminal book, Mere Christianity. But before we get too far, we should probably begin in prayer. And as is my habit here, I'd like to begin with a prayer of the Byzantine Church where we invoke the Holy Spirit. So if you'll please join me. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly King, Comforter, Spirit of Truth, Everywhere present and filling all things, treasury of blessings and giver of life, come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O gracious one. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. As you heard, the title of this talk is Life in Christ, not simply improvement, but transformation. We'll get to that talk title eventually. But I would like to begin by asking a slightly odd question. What is the point of Christianity? Now, I think it's pretty safe to assume that most of the people here are Christians. And so that begs a couple of questions. Why would I ask such a basic question to a group of Christians? I mean, doesn't everyone know the answer? And secondly, I mean, whatever the answer is, it's going to have to be pretty simple, right? I mean, there's not much to say. Well, to that first question, why ask such a basic question like, what is the point of Christianity? I'd say it's a good question to ask because it's important. 
Important questions don't have to be complicated. And not only that, if we get basic questions wrong, our mistakes tend to compound with time. If I come up to a T-junction and I take a left, whereas I should have taken a right, this is drawn from my experience the last few hours where I made a few wrong turnings. But if I come to a T-junction and I take a left where I should have taken a right, the longer I travel, chances are the further away I'm getting from my destination. So in a similar way, if we miss the point, if we misunderstand the central purpose of Christianity, we're likely to make a lot of subsequent mistakes, both about how we think about our faith and also about how we practice our faith. Now, regarding that second objection, it's going to be a short answer, right? What's the purpose of Christianity? Yes and no. Yes, but it has important consequences. And so it's worth taking the time, and that's what we're going to do tonight, to think through some of these consequences. Honestly, I could speak about this for hours, but I've only been allotted another half hour, so I'm going to work with what I've been given. So let's answer it. What is the point of Christianity? Unfortunately, there are a lot of answers out there that people give that are not quite right, or they're incomplete, or they fall short in some way. I mean, is the purpose of Christianity to go to church? I mean, we're Catholic. Mass is important, right? I don't ask rhetorical questions. Mass is important, right? Yes. <laughs> is that the purpose of Christianity, to go to Mass? Maybe. <laughs> is Christianity just God's attempt to stop us having too much fun? I mean, that's basically what happened at Mount Sinai, right, with Moses. God looks down and he sees the children of Israel having far too good a time. So he immediately sends down some tablets with a long list of thou shalt nots. Is the purpose of Christianity to become a nice person? Is the purpose of Christianity to read your Bible? Is the purpose of Christianity to build a better society? Is the purpose of Christianity to help the poor? Or is it simply a transaction? Is it simply that I'll pay enough attention to God in this life so that when I die, he has to let me into heaven? Now, I'm sure you've heard answers like this before, but they all fall short. They all fall short in giving an explanation for the purpose of Christianity. So those were the incorrect answers. I'm now going to give the correct answer. Are you ready? Yes. Now you're learning. No rhetorical questions here. The purpose of Christianity is simply this, to be transformed into Christ to be drawn into the very life of God and remain there for all eternity. To quote C.S. Lewis, this is not a special exercise for the top class, not just for the super Christians. This is the whole of Christianity. Christianity offers nothing else. All those other things that I mentioned earlier, reading your Bible, serving the poor, going to church, these are all very good things, but they are serving an end. They are not an end in themselves. The purpose of Christianity is to simply be transformed into another Christ. So that when someone sees you, they see Jesus. 
And that's why we're called Christians. We're called to be little Christs. The point of Christianity is to be filled to the brim with God's life. Now, I'm not just making this up. This has been the answer that has been given throughout the history of the Catholic Church. The most pithy rendition of this was given by St. Athanasius of Alexandria. He attended the Council of Nicaea in 325. You know the creed that we say most Sundays at Mass? The Nicene Creed? Well, he was there when that was being written. So he's kind of a big deal. Anyway, he said these provocative words. God became man so that man might become God. Doesn't that sound a little, mm, you know, heretical? I mean, doesn't that sound a bit new agey? It does a bit, but we've got to understand Athanasius correctly. He isn't saying that we literally become gods. This isn't Mormonism. It's not like we die and we get a planet to rule of our own. In theology, what Athanasius is talking about, it goes by a number of different names. Theosis, glorification, deification. I'm going to call it theosis because that's what we call it most usually in the Eastern Church. And what Athanasius is saying is that the word became flesh. God became man. Christ became incarnate in order that we might be filled with the divine life and be drawn into communion with God. Now, this might seem a little heady. So to help us understand it, Athanasius compared it to words like mercy and goodness. Strictly speaking, true mercy and true goodness, those are divine attributes. We can only really say them about God, but we can participate in those. And thereby, we can be called good and merciful. Or think about holiness. Holiness doesn't come from you. It's infused into the soul by God. That is to say that when God infuses that holiness in us, we can grow in holiness, grow in godliness, become more like God. At its most basic, what St. Athanasius is saying is that what Christ is by nature, we can become by grace. Now, where did Athanasius get this idea? He got it from the apostles. Now, I'm not going to give an exhaustive treatment here. If you'd like that, I have another talk for you. But I would like to offer a few Bible verses to show you that this idea of theosis, participating in the life of God, being turned into another Christ, that this is central to the theology of the apostles. When St. Paul wrote to the Galatians, he said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. What did I say the purpose of Christianity was? To become another Christ, to be filled with the life of God. St. John, in his first epistle, said, See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. St. John is saying that we've already been welcomed into the family of God. We can be called God's children. Even that, by itself, is a shocking idea. If we've been raised in the church, we've become too desensitized to the idea of, I am a child of God. But St. John says 
that what awaits us is something even greater because we're going to be like him. So that was St. Paul, St. John. We'll end with St. Peter. In his second epistle, he says, God's divine power has been granted to us all things which pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who calls us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, that through these you may become partakers of the divine nature. There you have it. St. Peter says it explicitly. What's the purpose of Christianity? To partake of the divine nature, the very life of God. There's one other proof that I would like to offer to show you that this idea is solid Catholic theology. Think back to the last time you went to Mass. Now, something happens between the offertory procession, when the gifts are brought up to the altar, just before the priest stands, raises his hands, and says, pray, brethren, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God. What's the bit that happens in between? Does anyone know? Say that again. True. I'm thinking of one particular thing that the priest does. He'll usually take the wine that's brought up in the offertory procession, he'll pour it into a chalice, and then usually an altar server will come up to the side of the altar with a little, a little uh, receptacle of water. And the priest will take the water and put a couple of drops in the chalice. Bonus question. Does anyone know what he says when he does that? He usually said very quietly, so altar servers will probably know this. Oh, somebody's nudging someone else. Go on, let's hear it. The priest says this. By the mystery of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ, who humbled himself to share in our humanity. I'm just going to say that once more, because you don't, often don't get to hear this at Mass. By the mystery of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ, who humbled himself to share in our humanity. It's right there. In every Mass, a description of theosis. God became man so that man might become God. The priest is praying that through the actions of the Mass, that we come to share in the divinity of Christ. The wine here, because it's still wine at this point, it symbolizes Christ's divinity. The drops of water represent the humanity of baptized Christians. And when those drops of water land in the chalice, what happens to them? They become one with the wine. God became man so that man might become God. So before we go any further, let's do a bit of a recap. I explained why it's important to ask the question, what is the purpose of Christianity? We went through some of the answers that people typically give that aren't quite right. And I then said that the true answer is theosis. The true purpose of Christianity is to receive the divine life, become like Christ, be transformed, and to dwell with the Trinity for all eternity. We then looked at St. Athanasius of Alexandria, who was a fourth century early church father, who said that God became man so that man might become God. We then looked at the biblical evidence for this, and then we finally saw that in every single Mass, we see an image of theosis, when the drops of water are placed in a chalice full of wine. 
Okay, so now we've answered that question. What's the point of Christianity? We can start to unpack the consequences of theosis. First and foremost, if theosis is the purpose of Christianity, then theosis is the purpose of your life. The purpose of your life is to be drawn into the life of God. Everything else is secondary. And I would suggest that understanding theosis, viewing Christianity in this way, it changes everything. It impacts the way that we think about sin, sanctification, the sacraments, heaven, hell, everything. And in particular, there's one consequence that I hope is clear to see at this point. And it's the title of this talk. Life in Christ is not mere improvement, but transformation. What else would you call being filled with the life of God? If my purpose in life is to become another Christ, to manifest the mysteries of his life in the world, then Christianity shouldn't just be mere improvement, you know, getting a bit better. It should be about radical transformation. We're starting Lent right now. This is a period of transformation. Are we going into it expecting to be radically changed? Are we expecting when Easter Sunday comes around for us just to be the same sort of person? Maybe a few pounds lighter because we've given up the sweets. <laughs> Lewis compares the Christian life and the Christian journey to that of a tin soldier, a little toy tin soldier being brought to life. That's the kind of change that Christianity should bring. For those of you who have read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe or saw the movie, the image you want to have in your mind here is when Aslan goes to the witch's castle. He breathes on the stone statues, and they transform. They become alive. That's what the faith should do to us. Spoiler alert if you haven't read the book. <laughs> now, Lewis loved another theologian, a guy called George MacDonald. And he had this wonderful parable. MacDonald said to his readers, imagine that you're a house, and God comes in to renovate it. At first, it's okay. He starts fixing the leaky roof, starts mending the floorboards. He deals with the sins where we really want help, things in our life that we know need fixing. But then he starts knocking the house about in a way that you can't understand. You know, it hurts. You don't understand what he's doing. He's knocking down walls. He's digging deep holes. MacDonald says he's not building the kind of house that you're expecting. You were quite content to be a nice little cottage. But God doesn't want that. He's turning you into a palace. And the reason is that he intends to come and live in you himself. In 1 Corinthians 6, St. Paul says that every Christian, the body of every Christian, is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Should it therefore surprise us that when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell, he wants to turn you into a place fit for the king of the universe? So transformation. This is what we're going to be talking about for the rest of this talk. Let's go back, first of all. The sin of Adam and Eve. Their sin was that they thought that they could set themselves up on their own apart from God, with dire consequences both for them and for us. And you would think that humanity would learn its lesson. You would think that we would 
realize that we have a great need of God. But in mere Christianity, Lewis says it's even worse than that. He says that the whole miserable history of humanity, war, poverty, death, it's just been humanity's long story in its futile attempt to find something, anything other than God, to make themselves happy. Lewis says that a car is made to run on gasoline. God has designed us to run on himself. He is the fuel that we need, and we just won't run right if we try and substitute it with something else. This is why God can't give us happiness apart from himself. There's no such thing. Other great saints have said very similar things. St. Augustine, he wrote in his confessions, you made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts will wander restless until they rest in you. So we need God. We need his life. But how do we get it? How do we get this divine life? And in answering this question, Lewis invites us to think about our natural biological life that we receive from our parents and compare it to the supernatural life which we can only receive from God. We received our natural life from our parents as a gift. It wasn't anything that we could ever earn and we could never have made it ourselves. However, our parents taught us that we need to preserve this life. Otherwise, it might slip away. This is why we eat and sleep. This is why our parents tell us to look both ways before we cross the street. This is why, as a small child, my mother reminded me repeatedly not to drink the liquids that I found underneath the sink. We have to feed, protect, and nurture our life. And in a similar way, we receive our spiritual life from God. And we typically do this through the sacraments. In baptism, we receive new life when God's grace is poured into our soul. And like our natural life, this isn't anything that we could ever earn. But like in the biological life, if we're not careful, that life can wither and die. We need to feed it, protect it, nurture it. But all the while we're doing it, we have to realize that we're just preserving something that we ourselves could never have made. It was a gift. And while the sacraments aren't the only way that God can communicate his life to us, they are the principal means that we've been given. God became man so that man might become God. Jesus said, I've come that you may have life and life in abundance. This is why Jesus instituted the church, instituted the sacraments, so that we could participate in his own life and thereby be transformed. Now, What's the consequence of thinking of the sacraments in this way? It means that when we go to Mass, we're not just going up there to tick a box, to get our ticket punched, but we go there to receive God's life, poured out for us in the form of bread and wine. St. Augustine, who I mentioned earlier, he liked to point out that normally when we consume something, when we eat something, it becomes us. But he pointed out that in the Eucharist, that transformation happens the other way. When we receive the body and blood of Christ, we're drawn back into his life. Another consequence is that we don't just go to confession once a year because canon law says that we have to. We go to confession regularly because we want to seek forgiveness for the times when we've tried to imitate Christ and failed. 
We go to confession seeking the grace that we know that we're going to need for this journey of transformation. And the good news about all of this is that it's God who takes the initiative and gives us everything that we need in order to be transformed. It's like being hired for a job for which you have no experience, no expertise, and no equipment. And the boss is telling you that he'll provide everything. All you have to do is accept his assistance and let him train you. Lewis says that if you want to get warm, you go near the fire. If you want to get wet, you dive into the water. If we want the divine life, we simply need to draw close to that fountainhead and let the spray hit us. And Lewis says that once a man is united to God, how could he not live forever? And likewise, once a man is separated from God, what can he do but wither and die? So we're transformed by receiving this divine life through the sacraments, and we sustain ourselves through them. However, think back to what we said about the natural life. We have to protect it. And the same is true for the divine life. We have to rid ourselves of anything which would destroy the divine life we've received. If when people see me, they're meant to see Jesus, that means I can't be complacent about my sin. We do it all the time though, right? Eh, it's not that bad. Sin strangles the divine life. Think of the parable of the sower. Remember the seed is sown, some of it falls on the path, some of it falls in the rocky ground and it can't send down deep roots. Some of it falls among thorns and has the life choked out of it. Lewis suggests that when Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, he wasn't saying that unless you're perfect, I'm not going to touch you. What he was saying was that if we invite him into our lives and don't resist, he's not going to stop working on us until we are perfect. And a consequence of that means that I can't hold anything back. I can't say that I've given all of my life to Christ, except this little bit here. I can't exclude certain parts of my life from transformation. I can't negotiate with sin, and I can't flirt with sin for the very simple reason that there's no place for it in heaven. Don't worry. Nobody noticed. <laughs> in The Great Divorce, this is actually my favorite Lewis book. This is actually a first edition that somebody sent me. But in The Great Divorce, Lewis tells a story of people coming up to the gates of heaven. Unfortunately, many of them turn back. And the reason is, is because they want to bring in with them their souvenirs of hell. They want heaven on their own terms. They want to bring their little pet sins in with them. And they refuse to enter heaven without them. That's crazy, right? But we do it all the time, right? In my day-to-day -day life, so often I have a choice between God's way or my way. Between choosing something good, true, and beautiful, or choosing something sinful. Going to be honest with you, I often choose the sinful. I do want to say one word about suffering. When we consider the Christian life in terms of theosis and the transformation that God wants to bring about in us, it changes our understanding of suffering. 
If the Christian life is about making the mysteries of Christ's life present in the world, that changes how we view suffering. Here's what Pope Francis wrote in his recent apostolic exhortation. He said, A Christian cannot think of his or her mission on earth without thinking of it as a path to holiness. Each saint, that means you, each saint is a mission planned by the Father to reflect and embody a certain aspect of the gospel. At its core, holiness is experiencing in union with Christ the mysteries of his life. The Holy Father is saying that for every single Christian, God wants to manifest the mysteries of Christ's life in their life. And each and every one of you has a particular mission that hasn't been given to someone else. Now, when we normally talk about mysteries, we think of the rosary. And when we pray the rosary, some of the mysteries are joyful, some of them are glorious, but some of them are sorrowful. Christ rose again. He ascended into glory. But before that, there was the cross. And sometimes we have to take our own crosses and imitate Jesus, the author and the pioneer of our faith. But there's some good news. Because God can use even those sorrowful mysteries in my life to make me more like Jesus. And I think, particularly those of you who are older, when you look back on your life, the places where you really grew, the places where you grew in intimacy with God, they were rarely the times when everything was good. They were very often those sorrowful mysteries. And in life, you're going to have pain regardless. It's going to happen. The question is, is what kind of pain is it going to be? Is it going to be like the pain of childbirth? It hurts, but you forget about it as soon as there's a baby there. Likewise, will we, will we take our sufferings and join them to Christ? They still hurt, but we know that something greater is waiting for us. It might feel like it's Good Friday, but Easter Sunday is just around the corner. And remember that Jesus said that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Anyone know what a yoke is? Somebody always makes a joke about eggs at this point. Anyone know what a yoke is? Yeah. Yeah, so when you had uh, oxen, you would put a yoke, usually two. So you'd have two oxen, and you'd put the yoke on them to make sure they both go in the same direction. And Jesus is saying that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. The reason why we can go through those sorrowful mysteries is because we're yoked to Christ. Through his sacrifice, all of our own sufferings now have meaning, and we can bear them because we're bearing them with him. Now, theosis is about transformation from who I was to who God calls me to be. But that's not the only option available to me. Rather than accepting God's life, I can reject it. And rather than allowing myself to be transformed into Jesus, I can be transformed into another kind of person. Lewis describes this whole journey and this whole transformation in terms of what he calls heavenly and hellish creatures. He says that every time you make a choice, no matter how small, there's that part of you deep inside, your heart, your soul, that central part of who you are. In every choice and every decision, you're choosing a direction, either a little bit more towards God or a little bit more away from God. And over your life, you have innumerable choices that you have to make. And this will transform you either into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature. 
either into a creature that is in harmony with God, with its fellow creatures, with itself, or into a creature that is full of hatred and at war with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself, heavenly or hellish creatures. In his sermon, Weight of Glory, Lewis says, It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you might be tempted to worship. Or else a horror such as you now only meet in a nightmare. Do you think about that? Do you think that your neighbor is an immortal? One day will become a heavenly or hellish creature. Because every day we are helping our neighbors choose one direction or the other. You're helping your classmates, your co-workers, to become maybe a little bit more heavenly or a little bit more hellish. And that's why we evangelize. So that the life that we've received from God, we share it with others. And that's also why we gather in community. That's why you're here tonight. To hear somebody exhort you to become a heavenly creature. And in light of this, do heaven and hell now make a little bit more sense? Because Christianity is not just about keeping a set of arbitrary rules on passing a test so that you're let into heaven. We're preparing ourselves for our final destination, whether that's heaven or hell. Either we've been saying yes to God's life and allowing ourselves to be formed into creatures fit for heaven, or we've been saying no and doing everything we possibly can to try and avoid him. Again, in The Great Divorce, Lewis says there are only two kinds of people. There are people who say to God, thy will be done. And there are people to whom God says, thy will be done. Either way, heaven or hell, we will get what we desire, what we have spent our life seeking. There's one last thing I'd like to mention before I start to wrap things up. Some people fear that if they undergo this transformation, this theosis, they'll lose all individuality and personality. Because after all, we've been talking about dying to self, being transformed into Christ. Doesn't that mean that we'll all be the same? <coughs> Cookie-cutter Christians, devoid of personality? Lewis reassures us that this is not the case. And he uses the analogy of salt. He says, imagine that you meet somebody who has never encountered salt before. And you give them a small amount to taste, and they taste it, that sharp taste. How would such a person respond if you say that where you're from, in all of your cooking, you include salt? Wouldn't they think that all of your food will therefore have to taste the same, that strong taste? But the thing is, we know that's not true. In fact, it's the opposite. Salt brings out the taste. In fact, sometimes the taste is sometimes hard to discern without salt. Lewis says it's the same thing with Christ. Christ is the salt which brings out our own uniqueness. If you don't believe me, just consider the saints of the church. They're different in almost every way. Men and women, young and old, rich and poor, educated and uneducated. There's only one thing that binds them all together, and that's their love for Christ. As an aside, this is the very reason that we pray to them because they participate in the divine life with which we participate. I was actually introduced to the saints by a Baptist pastor. 
He loved St. Francis, and so I picked up a book and started reading about St. Francis' life. And I remember getting to one section where we were told that someone had come to St. Francis and told him about a very sinful priest in a neighboring village who had been openly doing some very, very terrible things. And I was reading down to the bottom of the page, and it said, and St. Francis went to go see him. So I'm turning the page, and as I'm turning, I'm thinking, go get him, St. Francis. Get him! Preach a little bit of hellfire! Tell his priest that he needs to be holy. And what happens? <laughs> his phone goes off. <laughs> so where were we? Oh, that was it. I was getting incensed. I was thinking to myself, go get him, St. Francis. You need to knock this priest into shape. And I turn the page and I read what happens. St. Francis comes up to the priest, he kneels before him, and he kisses his hands. Because these are the hands that bring the people the Eucharist. And right then and there, I thought, ooh, that was such a Jesus thing to do. It caught me completely off guard. The saints aren't all the same, but they all communicate something of the Lord. Some of them were parents, some of them were celibate, men, women across the board, all different, but all manifesting in their life the mysteries of Christ. In fact, Lewis says this, sameness is to be found among the most natural of men, not among those who surrendered to Christ. How monotonously alike all the great tyrants of the world. How gloriously different are the saints. Now my time is just about up. But I hope in this talk I've helped you see Christianity with fresh eyes, to understand it in terms of theosis. Because very often it isn't explained like this. But if you look in the texts, if you listen at Mass, you will hear it. We are called to be transformed by sharing the very life of God, not mere improvement. And throughout the centuries, this is what the saints have done. And through them, Christ has ministered to the world. Over the course of this talk, I've explained how we too can cooperate with this transformation. We can receive the sacraments with faith and receive them often. We can receive the divine life which is there for the taking. And during this time of Lent, we can become more docile to God's grace. The church encourages us three main, three main things it calls us to do. Prayer, fasting, almsgiving. But honestly, in every small decision... We get to choose, God or not God. We can cooperate with grace and become a little bit more of a heavenly creature or reject it and go the other way. Every day we have the opportunity to imitate Christ, allow his grace to transform us into a creature fit for heaven. But we can't just remain 50%, 60%, 80% converted. We have to give God everything. We can't treat God like our taxes. We've got tax season coming up, and what happens? We go and give the government its due, and then hopefully it'll leave us alone, and the rest of the money is for us to do with what we want, right? How often do we treat God like that? We'll give him Sunday morning for an hour, hour and a half tops. But beyond that, we want the rest to ourselves. We can't do that. We have to give him everything. And we can't have any share in sin, because we're meant for heaven. And sin has no place there. I'd like to end by quoting Lewis 
in his final few sentences of mere Christianity. He says, give up yourself and you'll find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and your favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him. And with him, everything else thrown in. Let's end in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, you have always desired to be in a communion of love with us, your creation. Yet almost every step of the way, we have resisted you, choosing our own way instead of yours. Lord Jesus, you came to heal us and draw us back to the Father. You, God, became man so that man could become God. You poured out your life for us so that instead of being mere creatures, we could become God's children. You offered your life on the cross, and you founded the church and instituted the life-giving sacraments that we may receive your life and find strength for the journey. Holy Spirit, come and make your dwelling place in us. Fill every fiber of our being and transform us from the inside out. Burn away our sins, enlighten our souls, and brighten our understanding. Sanctify us, giving us a faith that cannot be confounded, a love that doesn't pretend, a wisdom that overflows that we may live no longer for ourselves, but for you. And that in every choice we make, that we would turn ourselves a little bit more towards heaven. And having spent our earthly life in the hope of life without end, grant us eternal rest where the sound of rejoicing never ceases. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.